Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you visit the website johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. I've got some uh, malfunction in my equipment right now, so I don't know what's going on, but we're going to try and... uh, Piece together a good show for you. We've got great guests lined up, including Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josepha Savaz, and visit with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture and author of several books. His latest coming out is Progressives, I should say, uh, uh, Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. It is December the 8th, and on the day in 1863, Uh, President Abraham Lincoln offered his conciliatory plan for reunification of the United States with his proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction by this point in the Civil War. It was clear that Lincoln needed to make some preliminary plans for post-war reconstruction. The Union armies had captured large sections of the South, and some states were ready to have their governments rebuilt. The proclamation addressed three main areas of concern. First, it allowed for a full pardon for restoration of property to all engaged in the rebellion with the exception of the highest Confederate officials and military leaders. Second, it allowed for a new state government to be formed with 10% of the eligible voters had taken an oath of allegiance to the United States. Third, the southern states admitted in this fashion were encouraged to enact plans to deal with the formerly enslaved people so long as their freedom was not compromised or infringed. In short, the terms of the plan were easy for most southerns to accept, though the emancipation of enslaved people was an impossible pill for some Confederate Confederates to swallow, Lincoln's plan for charitable uh, were charitable, considering the costliness of the war. When the proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction, uh, reconstruction, Lincoln was seizing the initiative for reconstruction from Congress. Some radical Republicans thought the plan was far too easy for the South, but others accepted it because of the president's prestige and leadership. Following Lincoln's assassination in April 1865, the disagreements over the post-war Reconstruction policy led to a heated battle between the next president, Andrew Johnson, and Congress, of course, which led to uh, Johnson's impeachment, the first impeachment of any president in the United States. While the political impact of inflation uh, may rival its economic impact, Uh, We all know that the inflation can devastate savings and throw the economy into chaos as consumers, workers, and businesses grapple with unstable and escalating prices. But it's been long enough since we suffered from high inflation that its political consequences were clearly on display. On Tuesday, CNBC released the results of its quarterly small business survey. Unsurprisingly, 75% of small businesses said they were facing higher costs, up to 70% in the third quarter. 58% complained of supply chain problems. Inflation was cited as the top concern by 34% of the small business owners, making it as far the top priority. 
Supply chain disruptions were a distant second as 23%, and COVID was down at uh, 17%. Politically, inflation has been devastating to Biden's support. Of course, uh, Republican small business owners oppose Biden and give him high disapproval scores. Likewise, Democrats insist that everything will be just fine, but independents have switched positions. In the third quarter, 51% said they approved of Biden's job. Now the, uh, has, the job has fallen to just 33%. Given this reality, it's no wonder that Team Biden has been sending out its mouthpieces to beg the establishment media for better coverage. Hey, come on, you guys, do your job. you got to start making us look good. <laughs> They've liked uh, more coverage of the employment situation. Uh, the unemployment rate, of course, is at 4.2%, but unfortunately, the labor force has shrunk dramatically. And most, a lot of folks, 4 million of them, haven't gone back to work and aren't in the labor force. We have no doubt that establishment media would like to go along with Biden's pleas for positive coverage, but it will not work. Folks are very disenchanted uh, with this administration. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. Now we're going to have a little silence right now, but uh, we'll visit with Bob just as soon as I get him on the air. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambos says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Golden Gate Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected into the community and with each other. The Golden Gate Senior Center provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Tatiana Fortune, director of the Golden Gate Senior Center. We want to be able to connect you to whatever service or activity. And even if the person doesn't want to come out for socialization, if they have a question about, um, hey, where do I go for transportation? Where do I go for uh, a certain health care if they have a need? We are able to point them in that direction through our information and referral service. So we're more than happy to assist in that as well. To find out more, visit CallYourSeniorResources.org. That's CallYourSeniorResources.org or call the Senior Center directly 
at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is the chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Good to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank in D.C., and we're devoted to private property, free markets, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Thank you, Bob. And uh, we were and have been for the last couple of weeks discussing anti-discrimination laws and the rights to discriminate. A uh, couple of contradictory thoughts. So uh, let's take a closer look. Let's pick up with this. Uh, what does it mean to say that a right is, quote unquote, fundamental? This is a term of art uh, originated by the Supreme Court. And to qualify as fundamental, the right has to be, and this is a quote, implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, or deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. So how a right is defined, whether it's narrow or broad, makes all the difference. And in effect, it dictates the outcome of litigation. So let me give you an example, or actually two examples. The first is a case called Race versus Gonzalez. A sick person claimed a right to use medical marijuana in California, Mm. where it was legal, and she had a doctor's order. And the Court of Appeals characterized the right as the use of marijuana for medical purposes. So she lost because medical marijuana, uh, said the court, isn't required for ordered liberty, nor is it deeply rooted in her traditions. If the court had adopted racist broader characterization, which was the liberty to pursue a less painful life, she would have won. Hmm. Then there's this contrasting case in Texas, Lawrence versus Texas, where the Supreme Court overturned a state regulation that criminalized gay sex. Texas lost that case. Why? Because the court characterized the regulation broadly barring a relationship that is within the liberty of persons to choose without being punished as criminals. So if the court had said this case was simply about gay sex, uh, the right would have been narrowly defined and therefore would not have been deemed fundamental. So that definition makes all the difference in the world as to the outcome. So uh, which definition of fundamental right is correct, Bob, narrow or broad? Well, in a sense, they're both right. I mean, Raish was trying to live a less painful life, also using medical marijuana. Lawrence was uh, pursuing this personal and private consensual relationship. Uh, He was also engaged in homosexual relations. So the court can rule 
how it wants, based simply on how it describes the right. And that, I think, is the foolishness of bifurcating these rights into these two categories, fundamental and non-fundamental. In my view, all rights, whether they're enumerated in the Constitution or unenumerated, whether they're fundamental or not fundamental, they ought to be rigorously protected uh, by the courts. And by the way, the area where the courts have been least protective is the area of economic liberties, where there have been all kinds of regulations that are really designed to protect politically connected persons and special interests. And those regulations are routinely rubber stamped by the courts. So I think, getting back to the discrimination issue, businesses should be able to select their customers and vice versa. Customers should be able to select their businesses guided by the market, constrained by competition, but not impeded and or directed uh, by government. And generally, that process leads uh, to what we would consider fair outcomes. Well, that makes all the sense in the world, Bob, but didn't free markets produce segregated restaurants and hotels prior to the Civil Rights Acts? Yes, I think it, for sure that did occur. Uh, free markets <clears throat> did produce some segregation. Um, bear in mind, though, that these markets were impeded. They weren't exactly free. First, we had Jim Crow laws. Mm-hmm. We had corrupt law enforcement. We had biased judges. They condoned violence against uh, black entrepreneurs or black customers. And even they denied, condoned the denial of services like water and electricity to companies that wouldn't tow the segregationist line. So I don't think you could categorize these markets as totally free. But in any event, that would simply prove that markets are not perfect, something that we knew all along, especially uh, when the government is on the side of the segregationists. But the, the proper comparison is not markets versus some ideal world where everybody's happy and uh, social justice is you know, widespread. The, the relevant comparison is markets as we have them versus government regulation, as some have proposed. And I think that no reasonable person disputes that government occasionally does good things and the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the equation isn't complete without considering some of the bad things that inevitably accompany the good things. So along with restaurant and hotel integration, which I think it's fair to say would have happened without government, although maybe uh, more slowly, but along with that, we now have the inequities associated with such things as minority set-asides and racial preferences and school admissions, not to mention uh, proposed laws that would require uh, Jewish bakers to provide cakes at Nazi weddings and black florists uh, to f- supply flowers at a Klan funeral. So regulation produces unintended consequences. Uh, free markets, notwithstanding their imperfections, generally lead to the best outcomes. Yeah, and Bob, uh, markets are fluid, just like our culture, fluid and dynamic. They change over time. We probably would have had uh, got rid of smoking in restaurants uh, irrespective of uh, the federal government stepping in. So uh, can the federal government just compel private florists, caterers, and bakers to serve gay weddings? Well, you know, some have argued that the um, because the Equal Protection Clause bars discrimination, um, that, that that you can force uh, florists and 
caterers and bakers to serve uh, all folks, including gay weddings. Um, bear in mind, however, that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment applies to the public sector. It doesn't apply to private businesses. So it's government that has to be non-discriminating, not private businesses. If you want non-discrimination in the private sector, if that's a moral imperative, then you need to amend the Constitution. You can't pretend that the text says what it doesn't say. And also remember, there's a distinction between what it says in law and what's the moral, the equitable, the right thing to do. It's perfectly consistent to argue that from a legal perspective, discrimination should be permitted in any society that honors your freedom to associate with whomever you please. Uh, a number, a member of one religious or one racial or ethnic group shouldn't be forced against his will uh, to associate with members of, of other groups. On the other hand, uh, from an ethical perspective, I think religious and racial and ethnic uh, discrimination can be uh, reprehensible. So I would condemn people who practice that kind of bigotry, uh, but I insist that they have a, a legal right to do so. Yeah, that makes sense. So what's the best argument against your view that private discrimination should be allowed? Well, the toughest question is this. If private businesses have the right to pick and choose their customers for whatever reason, doesn't that mean that the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act, um, and specifically Title II, which is the so-called public accommodations provision, doesn't it mean that that was unconstitutional? In other words, should private hotels and restaurants, et cetera, been uh, allowed not to serve African Americans? Well, my answer is this. At a minimum, the Civil Rights Act has a disputable constitutional pedigree uh, because the law addresses private entities, not government acts. It, it's not authorized under the 14th Amendment, which bars government actions only. And because the law had nothing to do with eliminating state-imposed barriers to interstate uh, commerce or travel, uh, it should not have been upheld, even though it was, in fact, upheld by the court under a misreading uh, of the Commerce uh, Clause. That, that is, the, the Commerce Clause, as originally understood by the framers, would not have covered that. Still, you know, that said, the Civil Rights Act helped erase an unconscionable assault on human dignity. And it's now settled law, not to be revised despite its constitutional infirmities. We're dealing with the doctrine now of stare decisis, something that your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with, given the abortion debates that are now ongoing. So interesting. Bob Levy, again, chairman of the Cato Institute. Refreshing to talk about policy and law versus politics, Bob. Again, Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. Bob, always appreciate your well-informed commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. We're going to see if this commercial break works. It probably doesn't, so you're going to have a little silence here for a moment, but we'll be with you in just a moment. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network.
Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Lyndon and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshire Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And to find out more and get tickets, you can visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. Right now, we have with us Andrew Joppa. Andy is a professor at uh, jo- and also author of a terrific read. It's called Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. So uh, we, we usually talk about culture. Of course, all things come from culture, including politics. Let's... Uh, where would you like to start today? Well, I'm going to start with some good news, which we have some of, not that much, but some. And then uh, I think the issues that are pending uh, right now, the immediacy of uh, Ukraine, the Ukraine situation, and then the perhaps longer term situation, not considering Taiwan, uh, of China in the uh, head to head battle for world supremacy. That will be the defining element of the 21st century. So uh, let, let me just start with some good news, Bob. Great. Um, first of all, first of all. Um, it's been uh, documented by the Cleveland Clinic that effectively Viagra can reduce the amount of uh, uh, Alzheimer's potential by as much as 70%. Yep. Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting um, uh, alternative use of, of Viagra. It'll be very interesting to see how uh, the insurance companies handle this. Uh, they're very reluctant to insure the uh, preventatives for unknown potentials, and yet uh, if, in fact, you get a 70% reduction potential using Viagra for Alzheimer's, 
that is a, a circumstance that should warrant almost a vaccine type of general application to the uh, to the public. I don't believe it'll happen, but I think if it's documented uh, in clinical trials uh, that it does prevent the Alzheimer's, the 70% factor, uh, that it may enter into the category of almost being vaccine-like in its implications, Bob. That is huge, isn't it? And what interested me first is, it, as it turns out, the Viagra was actually, it's an off-label use right now for uh, for men, uh, for their uh, ED. It has actually started as, as another type of a drug for a different purpose, and it's been very helpful in other types of situations as well. So it makes me wonder if perhaps it won't be prescribed for women. Well, it, it has been, I mean, because it does uh, increase the, 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 the blood flow in the body. It was originally used as a uh, high blood pressure preventative. Uh, and so, you know, they're like many drugs. They find alternative uses that, that develop. You can see that with uh, uh, ivermectin, for example, and the, the profound benefit to be a, achieved and has been achieved worldwide with ivermectin in, the, in its application as a therapeutic for, uh, for COVID-19. So it's, it's another example of that. It'll be interesting to follow that story and, <clears throat> and see how that develops, Bob. Um, another piece of good news, in my estimation, the uh, read the uh, stepping down of Amarova uh, as the nominee for the Office of Controller of the Currency. Uh, her uh, intention, or at least her, her background intention of inserting the government within all financial institutions, putting a government representative on the board of all banks, uh, I think that was the, the kiss of death for her nomination, and she recognized that. But I'm, I'm pleased to see her, yeah. her nomination is now, is now a withdrawn by her own accord, apparently. Which is great news indeed. Uh, you know, just following up on your comments on uh, Viagra, it'd be interesting to kind of get to, things are changing now in the world of vaccines. I wonder if we could pick up there and, and get your thoughts on what's going on with regard to uh, the South, Africa, South African coronavirus. Uh, what, what is it called now? Omicron or something like that? Omicron, yeah. What are your, what are your uh, <laughs> vaccines right now are t t t beginning to look like therapeutics, number one, and number two, not seeming to make too much difference in terms of people's health? I think there can be no documented, uh, at least essential difference in the whether you've been vaccinated or not, uh, received the boosters or not. Uh, the outcome seems to be essentially the same. Uh, I'm going to say something that I can't document, but I would think if we did not have the vaccines at all, the outcome at this point would be not measurably statistically different than it is. I certainly can't document that, but having read the numbers for the past several months, I, I think that is at least a reasonable statement to make. So, uh, But I think we're, again, seeing a high degree of politicization of, of Omicron. I think that will, uh, will continue, uh, and I, I've made this point on your show many times, at least through 2022 and, at least, and perhaps through 2024 uh, as the leverage point to maintain mail-in ballots for the election yeah. and ballot harvesting. And I think that is, I'm not going to say that's the, the largest motivator, but I certainly think it's a prime motivator for the, uh, the continued politicization of these, uh, of these uh, COVID-19 variants. Bob. Yeah, you know, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. wrote a book about uh, Anthony Fauci. It is shocking. I'm, I'm reading it right now. And uh, the way they, for example, uh, suppressed information and actually uh, uh, made the information about, for example, hydroxychloroquine, uh, really threw the drug out, which could have been a great therapeutic, 
And uh, now I guess the the only uh, drug that's allowed right now is uh, Ramdesivir, I guess it is. Yes. And, yes. and apparently that has a history of making people very ill itself. So there are other... Many deaths, many deaths associated with it. Yeah, exactly. So there's many therapeutics that could be a lot more helpful. Right now, it looks like the uh, FDA and the CDC have been weaponized against the American people. Well, there's there's no doubt. I I, I can uh, perhaps resist whether or not that was an intentional attack on the American people, and I, uh, but I can't prove it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, it certainly was a profit-driven uh, process yeah. uh, that, in fact, had the uh, ultimate uh, impact of seriously damaging the American people and costing thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives in the process, Bob. And I, I think eventually, if history is fair, they will rewrite this period of time and, and they will document that by intent, uh, drugs, therapeutic drugs were suppressed uh, for the benefit of the, the patent holders on the vaccines. Uh, that includes the CDC, it includes Fauci as a personality. And, and I think this is a uh, an issue that uh, hopefully will be fully explored as time goes on, Bob. Uh, there's no question. I mean, yeah, I'm sure you've heard about the two people. One person who uh, was refused the opportunity to take ivermectin. Uh, finally, the judge prevailed and said, you will administer ivermectin to this uh, patient. He ended up uh, recovering as a result. So right now, the therapeutics of the protocols that are in, in hospitals right now can be, lead to real damage and death. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, do no harm. That Hippocratic Oath seems to be somewhat upside down now with this COVID uh, nonsense. I've read many stories, uh, personal stories of people and what they go through when they enter a hospital with COVID-19 and the uh, almost depletization of their treatment, the people that interact with them. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you're, you're pointing out a, a story that's gained some uh, some notoriety uh, in which ivermectin was uh, was. Uh, demanded by a patient and approved by a, by a judge. And I think that uh, as we look at the, uh, the success of ivermectin in India, in, in Japan, uh, it's well-documented with minimal side effects. And for this country to be perhaps the only, well, no, it's not the only, but one of the, certainly the major country in the world that is suppressing ivermectin, uh, I think that is an outrage, Bob. It is indeed. So let's move back to your main topic of China. And uh, right now, our relationships are very strained with China. We've got concerned about Taiwan. <laughs> We've got a lot of concerns right now on this, uh, what has been called the feckless president trying to defend our borders. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I have a lot of thoughts. It's hard to get a, a firm grip on on this situation. Uh, one one more passing comment about the uh, the pharmaceutical world. You know, at this point, it's been well documented that there are uh, approximately a hundred drugs that are not available because of the supply chain <coughs> supply chain uh, chain shortages. Mm -hmm. uh, those include antibiotics, heart medicines, cancer drugs, uh, painkillers. Uh, and these drugs are becoming in, in lesser and lesser supply. <clears throat> Excuse me, Bob, my, my throat's a little hoarse this morning. Uh, but that's, I think, a serious issue that's going to become more serious if this supply chain problem uh, cannot be resolved. In terms of China, let me start out with what I regard as the more uh, immediate situation uh, of the uh, pending or potential, at least, confrontation uh, of NATO, of the United States, with Russia, in Ukraine. Now, if we go back into the history of that process, if we go back to the original dissolve of the Soviet Union, there was an agreement made with Gorbachev and the West that the Soviet Union, as it dissolved, would remove its troops from Eastern Europe, and the West pledged to not expand NATO 
into Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, of course, that pledge was was absolutely violated. Now we're looking at a situation where <clears throat> everything is uh, being done to try through most auspices to get uh, Ukraine into NATO. Now, if we look at what this represents to Russia, and I don't want to be defending Russia in any head-to-head -head circumstance with the United States, right. but I think in this particular circumstance, uh, with the failure to fulfill their pledge to, uh, to Russia as it emerged from, from communism, uh, I think there is absolute reason to believe uh, within Putin's mindset that this is a dangerous process for uh, for Russia. If we look back to 2014, when the United States initiated the removal of a democratically elected president uh, from Ukraine, now, certainly it was a it was a corrupt government, but nevertheless it was democratically elected. Once that democratically elected government was removed, it set loose a group of neo-Nazi thugs uh, that slaughtered uh, tens of hundreds of. Uh, if not multiple thousands of Russians and other ethnic minorities. So uh, for Russia to not be concerned with this, to not feel this is a threat is absurd. It, it is similar, Bob, in my estimation, uh, to the threat that we felt when uh, the Soviet Union put nuclear weaponry or at least missiles uh, into Cuba. Right. We threatened Khrushchev with the invasion of Cuba if those missiles were not removed. I think there is a real corresponding process as to what's going on in Ukraine right now, Bob. I think that I absolutely agree with that. In fact, my concern is to be because of the lack of popularity of this president, uh, it may perhaps his motivation is to get engaged right now in some sort of a heated escalation of of uh, conflict with Russia over Ukraine as a way to uh, change the scent away from inflation and the other things that are going wrong here in the United States. Yeah, it's, geez, my voice is really bad this morning. I, no, I really apologize. No but, worries, Andy. Um, You know, I, I think that the word nuclear is being bandied about all too much. I, I heard one military uh, interview in which they indicated that if there were U.S. troops in Ukraine, they would be immediately overwhelmed by the proximity of the Russian forces to the Ukraine, uh, to Ukraine, uh, and that it would result in the uh, use of, of tactical field nuclear weapons. That was a, a scary statement. I also uh, just read yesterday that Belarus uh, said they would welcome the uh, the um, the movement of nuclear weapons from Russia into their uh, into their territory if uh, serious offensive weapons were put in Ukraine. All of this talk is is, is worrisome to me. Mm -hmm. um, it, it can result in a uh, in a, uh, a a war that could start with any spark. Uh, and it's a deep it should be a deep concern to all Americans at this point, Bob. Absolutely. And of course, we have no interest, no military or economic or uh, concerns about uh, Ukraine. It's none of, our, none of our business, quite frankly, except for this NATO issue. And uh, again, that comes back to, as you pointed out, which I didn't realize, the uh, agreement we had when we, when Russia was dissolved or, or you know, the Soviet Union was re dissolved. So that was such an interesting and, and important point. We, we it, agreed. it was a hidden agreement, but it's been fully uh, revealed now. And it's, it's, Absolutely true that we made that agreement with the uh, then dissolving uh, Soviet Union through Gorbachev. So we just celebrated, uh, or not celebrated, but recognized uh, December the 7th, the, the invasion of Hawaii and uh, what happened then. We have the greatest generation of people who fought for and to preserve the uh, United States of America in World War I and World War II. Where do we stand now? 
Well, I don't think we're in that circumstance that could even be vaguely referred to as the greatest generation. I, I, I would add, a, as a, as a subnote to the uh, uh, December 7th date, uh, 1941, uh, my mother and father were dating casually at that point. They got married immediately thereafter, uh, prompted by the emotional response uh, to that moment. And of course, then I was a derivative of that. So I can, I've always, through a, a series of stories to my classes, said this is a systems analysis. Everything that happens in a system affects everything else in the system forever. And my birth was caused by the by that Japanese decision. And my students, therefore, are affected by that. So, Absolutely. Uh, where do we stand right now? I, I think that we're certainly not the same country. We're, we're uh, dramatically more divided. I think we're uh, dr dramatically... Um, but let, let me start someplace else before that. If we look back to the, let's say, 1939 with a, a, a very weak American military given uh, no support by, uh, by the, the, the political world at that point, uh, if we look at the existence in mainland uh, America, uh, in continental America, the, uh, the Nazi Bund movement that was uh, so prevalent. There were a lot of indications, strong anti-Semitism. But once the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, uh, that was all put aside and we emerged. I think America was more created by the response to that Japanese attack on December 7th, then it was the fulfillment of an existing set of characteristics. I, I, I'm just what I'm saying is, is that I think World War II and what uh, emanated from that as a derivative was the creation of the greatest generation, hmm. not the not the fulfillment of the greatest generation. Yeah, meeting the challenge and certainly did that, but it also uh, made a special place for the United States in the world in terms of leadership which uh, right now I'm concerned that we're seeing that uh, leadership decay. We're seeing uh, a loss of true leadership here in the world. Well, if, if I were to uh, weigh the outcome in the, uh, uh, in the conflict, in the adversarial conflict, if not eventually military conflict between the U.S. and China, and was to uh, hinge that entire evaluation on leadership, Certainly, China has that uh, in spades over the United States. Uh, the Biden leadership, uh, certainly it's not Biden himself per se. In my estimation, the, these these inputs to Biden are, are, are coming from elsewhere, and we could talk about that forever where it's coming from. Uh, but on that one factor alone, Xi's leadership, the single dominant lifelong potential leadership of Z is a major factor in what is going right in the in the war between the battle, the figurative war between the United States and China. If we look at many of the uh, the pro-American positions, and I am in that category, except for this particular analysis, certainly uh, most of those uh, people surveying the situation between China and the United States uh, believe essentially that China will lose the United States will win. Uh, I think I pointed this out on your show before that uh, the general premise is that, uh, and I use this as a title in my recent essay, that China will have a reckoning, uh, that its population will uh, start to demand greater freedom, that it will uh, start to dissolve as a, uh, as a unified country, that the pressures will increase and so forth, that China will lose in this battle uh, as compared to the United States having to win. Those people that are predicting more a Chinese victory, where they focus is not so much on Chinese attributes, although there are many positive attributes. What they focus on is the lack of serious internal 
uh, uh, problem-solving uh, realities in the United States. They cite that we're so involved with issues that have no significance, no importance, no value in terms of uh, serving this country well, either domestically or internationally. And so what I'm seeing, and my, my prediction will be, if the United States cannot find itself, cannot find itself as it was, uh, 50 years ago, even, Bob, that I think in the long run, and I don't mean in 100 years, I mean in the next several decades, that I think China will emerge, certainly as the dominant economic, political, military force on this planet. And I hate to say that, but I see nothing in the United States at this point uh, that will document that we are, in fact, willing or able to fight that battle with a country with a billion, 400 million people, well-educated, high investment in research and development, probably the most aggressive artificial intelligence uh, group on the planet, an extremely well-educated population, an extremely intelligent population. So I'm seeing that. And what the United States is doing, we are we are fiddling while America is burning at this point, Bob. Well, and of course that uh, sets up, uh, or it's based on a, the predicate is uh, that we're in an adversarial relationship. I think basically this administration is saying let's go global and is willing to concede the importance of the United States in this role in, in terms of the globalist agenda, which is very sad because I, I think, of course, President Trump wants to make America great again. The globalists want to say, you know what, we should just all kind of uh, become sheep <laughs> in terms of global leadership. Well, I mean, there is a general premise that's been well uh, explored that uh, the American political elite are pretty much thrown in the towel against China. Yeah. They, they have conceded the uh, eventual uh, dominance of the emergence of China uh, and that the United States will take a, uh, a backseat role. They're not describing the depth of that backseat, but certainly a backseat role to China. Uh, it, can, it can result in a, a second-rate status that will seriously impact on the American people in terms of the quality of their lives, uh, perhaps the removal of the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. Uh, these are, there's no immediacy to that, certainly. But if China keeps growing economically and the United States uh, keeps uh, their involvement with useless issues, then that is a strong possibility in the future, Bob. Well, and we're eroding uh, the dollar from internally. What we're trying, what we're doing right now by the spending programs, by the the uh, socialist programs, Build Back Better, all these things are going to lead to the total demise of the United States in terms of its fiscal responsibility and the and the uh, integrity of the dollar. Yeah, I, I don't know how much shopping you do for food or the food stuff. I, I do a lot of the shopping, but um, I look at the prices, Bob, there. It's not just a simple uh, 5 or 6% inflation, which is extensive as an inflationary number. Yeah. I think it is larger than that. I think it's much, much larger than that, Bob, if I can judge by my own experiences. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, Andy, always appreciate your commentary on the show. Andrew Joppa, author of a book that's kind of off topic for today's discussion, but extremely interesting. Josephus of Oz is the name of the book. Andrew, My book is off topic for any discussion. <laughs> Andrew, Andrew Jabba's Josephus of Oz. Andy, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk soon, Bob. All right. Thank you, Andy. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Professor Larry Bell. He's endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. We'll be talking about his column, Progressives Misinterpret Land of the Free. We'll also be visiting about his book, Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. Of course, he wrote this with Buzz Aldrin, 
It's uh, now come out and it's available in hardback. We'll be doing that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America and is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. You can find out more and download the app for Choice Social at choicesocial.us. The website is choicesocial.us. We have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture and author of several books. His latest just on uh, came out just on the market now beyond flagpoles and footprints pioneering the space frontier professor thank you so much for joining us and bob thanks so much for having me on always a pleasure professor you know i I saw the release now the book is on the market i think it'd be really informative and helpful for our listeners to find out about the book that you wrote with uh, buzz aldrin yeah uh the book is about uh actually it's a product of about about a 40-year or more uh, relationship with Buzz, friendship, working relationship. And uh, 
and and uh, many many conversations, endless conversations. Uh, and it's about the book is really a history book, uh, but it's not it's not dry by any means. It talks about how the space, how what we call space development, really came about, and you know the you know the early uh, visionaries that that thought about leaving Earth and so on that were the first practical ones that created the means to do that. It really talks about the global developments and and there there are some of them are of course very inspiring and some of them are very terrifying because you know we we can recall that the uh, you know the you know the the buzz bombs, you know, the V two rockets from Russia was raining down on London were were pretty terrifying and we think of the different, uh, and today we think of, you know, bombs coming down from from hypersonic missiles, you know, fired from China or Russia or whatever, and and so so space represents that very terrifying aspect of, of things, but it also represents, you know, the internet and the satellites and you know telecommunications and and uh, so many of the technological uh, advances that have really change the way we live and uh and the international space station and the notion of going to the moon internationally going to mars and so space represents both our greatest hopes and our greatest fears you know during the cold war you know we had the you know the, the cold war going on with russia on the ground and we had apollo soyuz we had our astronauts and cosmonauts uh, embracing each other over the atlantic ocean and space from space and I knew both. Of, I knew the astronauts and the cosmonauts. I that that were some of them were on that mission. You know, the I had been going to Russia from right after the Berlin Wall came down. I was in, in the Soviet Union employed. I was one of the first Americans invited there to meet with heads of the Russian space program. And and I've got uh, many, many, many trips there. And I've worked and had I, my, my name was on the rocket that flew the first crew to the space station. From, wow. From Baikonur, and and so, so I've, I've had that experience with, with the Russians, but also, and I don't really chronicle this that very much in the book, but, but in my own experience, uh, Buzz has been a friend for you know for more than forty years, a close friend. We stayed at each other's homes, and and uh, he's participated in my center at the university from its very beginning. And Neil Armstrong was on the board of a company I founded. Uh, 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 space Space Industries Incorporated, a company, and Buzz was on our board. Along, I mean, Neil was on our board along with the first two directors of the Johnson Space Center. So, I have a history of knowing, you know, knowing Buzz and Neil and and half the people that walked on the moon, and and uh, and so it's it's particularly meaningful to me to have this to have this book out and. And, and the first part talks about the kind of the visionaries and the thoughts and some of these very early developments. This, the main main second part of the book talks about all the stuff we've seen with growing from from government programs to commercial programs and space tourism and and Elon Musk and and Bezos and these this sort of things. And the third part of the book is I call it buzzwords. It's it's really looking at the future. Uh, where are we going from here? Where should we go from here? Uh, and I thought no better, no one better to uh, 
discuss that than than, than Buzz, who is incredibly. Uh, you know, people don't realize Buzz was a, you know, like Neil was a, a fighter pilot. He Buzz shot down a couple of MiGs in in, in well, the Yellow River and, and the Korean War, and in Buzz. But you know, he also was a West Point graduate. He got a Ph.D. in orbital mechanics, which is no small uh, deal, uh, based upon his really uh, dogfight experience looking at space trajectories and and he has a marvelous mind he's a dear friend of mine hmm. one of my closest friends over the you know over the long over the long haul and and so uh to me it's an important book uh it's important because the story is important it's 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 a global story it's not a it's not a coffee table book it's not i don't mean it's heavy reading but i just mean it's it's not just a bunch of pictures and, and cheers. It's yeah. it really looks at the at the at the warts and the and the and, and the and the triumphs and uh, so it's 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 out now on Amazon. Well, it sounds very exciting. I, I have not read the book yet. I look forward to it. It's now available, and uh, I will say, based on the previous ten books you've written, uh, which by the way I've read most of them. I uh, just really recommend it uh, to our listeners. Think about it as a holiday gift. Uh, that is Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. I wonder, do you touch at all on um, the uh, unidentified flying objects? This apparently has, has become a story lately. It seems to me that there's a lot going on in outer space which has been suppressed or uh, unavailable to us. Uh, this whole notion of life and other things going on in outer space that we haven't identified. What are your thoughts? Well, I didn't that discussed in the book, but it, it triggers a, a memory I have of one of my many trips to Russia, and I was meeting with the professor, he's no longer alive, from the Moscow Aviation Institute. I had I had dinner at his home uh, one evening, and this goes back to, uh, you know, quite a number of years ago. He had a, he had a photograph on his, you know, over his uh, fireplace, and uh, it was a picture of the Buran rocket and the Buran launch vehicle. It was really a knockoff of our space shuttle. It was sitting on a pad. You know, they, they built four of them, I think. And and uh, and and there, and there was a little object speck in the on the photograph up above the, the the vehicle. And I made kind of a joke about it. I said it looks like a you know flying saucer, flying object. Well, it was it wasn't a joke. You know, he said, let me show you. Enlargement that picture, and so he showed me enlargement, and and uh, it was a geometric object. It looked, it was, it was not a, yeah, I can't say it was man-made because I don't know who, you know, if it was a man or what made it, but it was, it was clearly a, a something that you would that was a geometric shape. It looked like something, you know, it was looked metallic. It, I can't remember, and it, it, I just. You can't recall from memory whether it was. It seemed like it was a short cylinder, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to a sphere or a disc. But I, I just can't pull that up in my mind, and because it was a rather fleeting uh, thing, it was so many years ago. But but he said, you know, these they had seen sightings there in Russia of, of such phenomena, and and so I, I take away from that that. Well, it's not the Russians doing it because they don't seem to they don't seem to understand what it is. And this went back quite a number of years ago. This went back to about 1990 or 
uh, or, or so, and you know, it was probably twenty years ago, and uh, so so I, I I don't have a clue. Uh, it's mystifying to me, and but the more we get into things like quantum theory and you know parallel universes and things, it seems it really it seems like we know so little. Yeah. I, I, about just how, even how physics works. So fascinating. Again, uh, Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston. The name of the book, I encourage you to read it. I'm going to read it. Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier by Professor Larry Bell. Professor, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And I always appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, tomorrow... We're going to visit with Keith Flaw, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Phil Kirpin is the president of American Commitment. Phil will be joining us. Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government. And Bill Barnett, former mayor of Naples, will be joining us as well. Uh, always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.